0: I want to encourage you to put your seatbelts on this morning. And um, I would like you to try something this morning. Instead of waiting until the end, I'm going to do this up front so that you can kind of get your heads on uh, in focus. And that is, when a speaker speaks, when a preacher preaches, when a teacher teaches, they usually are going to cover a lot of ground. And you can get saturated pretty quick. So here's the challenge this morning. If you would just open your heart to the Holy Spirit right now and ask him for one nugget something that will resonate with you something that you can take home and chew on all week that will provide life that will provide hope that will provide refreshment that will do what you needed to do in your life instead of trying to capture all the nuggets that come out cuz the word is alive and active right and sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to speak to all of our issues the same word can speak 168 different things according to our need, right? So if you'll just open up your spirit this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to let you leave with one nugget, I think we're going to be in great shape. Okay, here we go. So we've been involved in a series. Pastor Phil came up with uh, this awesome little series on how to tame the little foxes out of Song of Solomon. There are these things in life that if we're not careful about, they'll just nip away. Nip, 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 nip. And one little nip's no big deal. But you put 10, 50, 100 little nips, and there's, you know, it's chewing away till eventually it can sever our relationship. It can break down confidence. It can destroy you. In fact, the scripture says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Okay, so we want to make sure that we take a practical look at the word of God throughout this month of July. And, um... Uh, that's what we're doing. So last week, Pastor Phil tackled the little fox of frustration. This week, we're going to go after the fox of disappointment. And next week, when Pastor Phil comes back all refreshed and, and energized, he's going to talk about the fox of unfair treatment. Okay. So the big idea here is that there are some things that we're going to be able to solve, some tension, some, some conflict, some issues they're solvable. They're resolvable. You can actually bring them to a resolution and walk away and it's done. There are quite a few things, however, that will not be resolved. We simply need to cope with them. We need to manage them. We need to live with things untied. How many of you are the kind of guys or women that just like to tie things up and leave them and untied things drive you nuts? Okay. Okay. If you're that kind of person, I will do my best to fill in the blanks as we go along, okay? But if we get by a blank, you have all my permission to raise your hand and say, ah, excuse me, that blank back there? Because I know that if we leave without filling in that blank, it'll ruin your day, possibly your week, and I wouldn't want that. Okay. So this is what we know. As a psychotherapist now, after being a pastor for 35 years and doing a lot of counseling, we know that in any marriage relationship, one-third of your relationship with your spouse is going to be conflict. And we know of that one-third of conflict, two-thirds will never be resolved. Ooh, that sounds ugly, doesn't it? Like, but it's true. It's what we've all been living with. I celebrate my 33rd year, uh, 33rd year of marriage to my beautiful wife, Liz. Yeah. And let me tell you what, two-thirds never gets resolved. She likes blue. I love pink or pink and blue or whatever it is. <laughs> And you know what? What do we end up painting the kitchen purple? Like, what do you do with that? Sometimes you just need to learn to manage the unresolvable things in life. And that's what we're trying to do here today. The the fox of disappointment, there are going to be some disappointments you're going to be able to resolve and some you won't. And so let's talk about today some ways that we can get through the next week, the next month, the next couple of years, the next part of our life with disappointment in a way that We either get to solve it and resolve it, or we get to manage it in a healthy way so that it doesn't ruin what God's got planned for us. Okay, so in order to do this, I've picked the story of Joseph. This is an amazing guy. He had all the reason in the world to be disappointed. Think about it. His family is not unlike a lot of families like uh, are today. He comes from a blended family. I come from a blended family. I left home when I was 14 and uh, moved in with another family. And through sort of osmosis, they now become my pa- my kids' grandparents. And, you know, so I get that. So Joseph was not unlike that. His dad had a bunch of wives. And it was through his favorite wife, after fathering many other children, that Joseph was born. He had 11 brothers that we know of that were really not too keen on Joseph because he was daddy's favorite, because his mommy was to his daddy's favorite. On top of this, we know that Joseph was good-looking and he was gifted. How many of you, just by show of hands, know that you're not gifted in very much? On the other hand, how many of you know that there are things that you do well? Raise your hand. Listen, that should be all of us, because all of us have something that we do well, That's right. okay? And we need to be upfront with that. The problem with gifted kids is that they are usually very aware of it at a young age. And, and it's tough. It's tough, because you get kind of separated out from the mainstream, because you're good at this, or you're good at that, or you're really good at something, and everybody's jealous of you, and you're thinking, why? Why, why do I have to be stuck with this, because it makes me different from all the other kids, and... It was true for Joseph. Joseph could hear from God in ways that most people don't. He could interpret dreams, and he could foresee and foretell sort of what was going to happen in the future. And so he had a couple of these dreams, and he told them to his family, and unfortunately the dreams weren't, you know, to their brother's liking for sure. The dreams had something to do with Joseph being there and his brothers bowing down before him and worshiping him or doing something like that, and they're His brothers did not appreciate it. And his dad, in fact, was a little miffed by it too, but he didn't say much. He he ended up giving Joseph yet another reason to be separated from the family. He gave him a coat of many colors by saying, Here, Joseph, you're my, you're, my, you're my special kid. I'm going to give you this coat to make you even stand out more. Well, <laughs> it happened that uh, Joseph's older brothers were away keeping care of the sheep, and Dad sent Joseph off to, to have a message for them. And when they saw him coming, they decided, this is it. We're getting rid of this kid. And so they're actually going to kill him. And one of his older brothers talked them into not quite killing him, but putting him in uh, a dried cistern. So they threw him down into the pit and... Uh, Lo and behold, what should happen, but a bunch of people traveling to a far distant land were coming along, and they decided, we'll sell him into slavery. And so for a, a few cents or shekels or pennies or dollars or something, they sold him to these traveling guys, and these guys bought Joseph, took him to Egypt, and sold him into slavery, into the house of Potiphar. Potiphar quickly discovered that Joseph was a gifted kid, could really do organizational stuff quite well, and gave him charge of his household. And God blessed Joseph. Well, we know he was good-looking because Potiphar's wife kind of got keen on Joseph. And so she kept pressing him to sleep with her. And Joseph would say to her, look, your husband has given me everything. Why would I do this terrible thing to him by sleeping with you? Why would I dishonor him, dishonor God? No, come on, put it out of your head one day. She just wouldn't take no for an answer. She would just press him She grabbed him, and she said, sleep with me. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. He just left. And he left his cloak in her hands, so not to be embarrassed. She falsely accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. And so Potiphar, her husband, of course, I think Potiphar kind of knew about his wife. I really do. I kind of had that feeling. But what I was going to do, you know? So he had to put Joseph in jail, falsely accused of of molesting his wife. And there, Joseph... Uh, what are you going to do, rot in prison, right? No, Joseph decides that he's going to continue doing what he does best, and that is managing people and managing stuff. And so clearly the warden saw his gifting, gave him charge of the prison, he rises up into the ranks, and he continues to do that little dream interpretation thing. And uh, Pharaoh had two people that he fell out of favor with for some reason. Maybe they got drunk at a banquet or something like that, and they didn't show up and do exactly what he wanted. I have no idea. But they ended up in prison. One was a baker, and one was a cupbearer. The baker being the guy that bakes, and the cupbearer being the guy that tastes everything before it's given to the Pharaoh, so that if there's poison in it, he drops dead first. Great job. Mm. (laughs) So they both had dreams, And they're like, oh, man, I wish we could know what this is all about. And Joseph says, I can tell you because my God can do this. So he does. He tells the poor baker that he's toast in three days, but he tells the cupbearer that good things are going to happen to him. And they're like, huh. And true enough, true to form, they both get out of prison. Three days later, Pharaoh dispatches the baker, and the cupbearer is restored to his place. Before they left, Joseph says to the guy, the cupbearer, who he knew was going to outlive the baker by a long time, please remember me as these dreams come true. And of course, the cupbearer being so thankful that he was restored to life and not dispatched, like the baker forgets all about Joseph for many years until Pharaoh has a dream and he's trying to get it interpreted. And the cupbearer goes, oh, please, Pharaoh, forgive me. I I really misstepped here. You know, Joseph even asked me to remember him. I forgot him. But there's this Hebrew who can interpret dreams? Does it very well. And so the Pharaoh said, well, bring him, bring it on. And so they bring Joseph out of prison, clean him up, wash him up, dress him up, take him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, oh, no, 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 it's not me, but my God can do this. Let me tell you what's going on. And so Pharaoh tells him all his dreams, and Joseph gives him the interpretation that, oh, oh, Bubba, let me tell you what's going to happen here. There's going to be seven years of famine. But if we're good about this, we can store up all the grain so that we can make it through all these seven years of famine, and Egypt can come out on top of the pack. And so Pharaoh says, well, we've got to find a guy that can really uh, manage all this. And of course, Joseph's gifts are, are recognized. And so the long and the short of it is Joseph becomes number two in Egypt. And Pharaoh gives him a wife, and he has children, and he makes it through the seven years of famine by being a good steward of all the grain and putting it in silos and then selling all the grain during the famine. Well, the famine reached as far away as his evil brothers and his lovely father and his other brother that he loved very much, Benjamin. And they had to come to Egypt to buy the grain. When the brothers finally got to Egypt to buy the grain, they didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized the brothers. And, oh, man. I, you know, this is, where, this is where Joseph's godliness really shines through. He did toy with them. If you read the story, he, you know, made them suffer a little bit. But not like I would have. Oh, <laughs> you're going to throw me into a hole? Make me rot in prison? And do all this stuff. Never mind my father's broken heart. God only knows what you told him. In fact, what they did tell him was that, oh, we're sorry, Dad. But you know that coat you gave him? Look, it's all covered in blood. He must have gotten eaten by a, a wild beast. We're so sorry. So his poor dad's been thinking that Joseph's dead all these years. He sets it all up where he finally gets his favorite brother, Benjamin, to come back with the whole family. The long and the short of it is he reveals himself to his brothers. And he brings them into the land of Goshen where they as a keeper of cattle and sheep and stuff can live a great life even during the famine. And this is what he says to his brothers who when they kind of come back and recognize, oh my gosh, huh, there is no way that he's not going to try to take us out now because he's number two in Egypt and we're the bad guys in this situation and certainly he's not bringing us back to Egypt to take care of us. He really wants to impale us. And so they go to him and they, they just are flat out, look, we recognize we did bad against you. And he's like, look, this is what he says in Genesis fifty twenty. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Oh, and by the way, remember those dreams? Just saying. <laughs> um, this is kind of a, an interesting scripture in that I like to call it 50-20 vision. Instead of having 20-20 vision, you know, a hindsight, 20-20 vision, it's always great, right? You can always look back and see what you could have, should have, would have done. This is 50-20 vision, and I like to say it's kind of like God's vision, Right? I love 50-20 vision. I love it when you could have been destroyed. You could have been taken out. You could have been so disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned, and defeated and depressed that you just gave up the ship. But no, you didn't. Joseph was able to go through this incredible waiting of a decade and more of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment until finally God's plan for him was realized and he became this number two guy in all of Egypt with a wonderful family and able to be reconciled to his father and and family. How did he do it? He had the ability to see things from God's perspective and that's what we need too. And when we're dealing with the little fox of disappointment, it's absolutely necessary that we begin to be able to do that. So let's look at that. Disappointment. What do we mean by disappointment? Have you ever been disappointed before? Sure. We kind of framed this by saying disappointment is unmet expectations. When you expect something to happen or be a certain way and it doesn't happen or it doesn't turn out the way you think it should have or you thought it would, you get disappointed, right? Okay. So let's look at some of the causes of disappointment or unmet expectations. Number one, the expectations are not shared. Or, in this sense, they're either not shared, they're not in agreement with you, you have certain expectations that other people don't agree with, as in his brothers, or you have not communicated your expectations to those that you're living with, a spouse, a child, a boss, a neighbor, or somebody. They're not communicated. But in any way you take it, they're the causes of disappointment are expectations that are not shared. So certainly with Joseph's brothers, we understand that they did not agree with his expectations that one day that they would be bowing down before him. But let's look at the not shared in terms of the practical uh, application to us in our lives. What happens when we don't share our expectations with, say, our spouse or somebody that we're close to, uh, a brother or a sister or, or, or somebody that's a really good friend? From a couple standpoint, you can say something and mean something totally different. If my wife says, Oh, I'll be there in a second, (laughs) or give me just a minute, I'm a guy that likes to be on time. Unfortunately, Liz does not share the same expectation. If I say, Give me a minute, if I'm not just, oh, look, there goes a squirrel, chances are I'll be on time and I'll meet that expectation that I'll be there in a minute. What if you say, let's try another different tactic. Yeah, uh, guys, if you say you don't have anything to wear, what do you mean? Nothing's clean, right. <laughs> Ladies, if you say I don't have anything to wear, what could you mean? The same three words. I have nothing to wear. Five words. (laughs) We both say them, and we mean very different things. Therefore, our expectations to fulfilling that problem are going to be very different. Unless we communicate what it is we mean by what it is we say, our expectations are not going to be shared, and we're going to get into some hot water. How many of you spouses out there can say, amen? And it's not just true for married folk. It's true for single folk, too. We need to communicate what it is we need or what we want in a way that people can understand. Otherwise, we are going to be disappointed. Sometimes, disappointment is unavoidable. You come to a meeting, you have solutions, and so does everybody else, and their solutions get picked and not yours. You're disappointed because your idea didn't float the boat? Oh, well. You've got to learn how to go with the flow. Number two, expectations that are unrealistic. <laughs> If you have unrealistic expectations, chances are you're going to be disappointed somewhere along the line. I am 57, therefore I'm a child of the 60s. And the 60s followed the 50s. And for those of you that are so young, you don't know what the 50s were about. Um, The 50s, if you've ever heard of June Cleaver, leave it to Beaver. The Petries. Come on, are we? Come on, look you guys. The Dick Van Dyke Show, come on, give me a little feedback here. Yes, okay, good. Rerun, Nick at Night, come on, get with the program. Okay. So these, these were symbols of the 50s and 60s of perfect families where everything was like, whew. And out of that June Cleaver kind of idealism came the mantra that was promulgated back then by parents, which said, son, you can do anything you want to in life. As long as you work hard enough, as long as you put your mind to it. Because back then in America, man, it really was the dream. People were living it, and people really felt this kind of unended stream of possibilities that nothing was impossible. Is this really true? Even for gifted kids, is it true? No. Will I ever be on Mars because I want to be on Mars? Probably not. Even if I try really hard, if I put my mind to it, I'm never going to raise the bazillions of dollars it's going to take to be a space explorer, which some guys are doing. But they're not at Mars yet. They're only, what, out in outer space. So chances are I'm going to be disappointed. There are those kind of expectations that we have that if they're not realistic can be shot down and you can become disappointed. Well, what about the scripture that says I can do all things in Christ? That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Well, let's look at that, because certainly there are expectations that Christ has for us, that God has for us, that can sound totally unrealistic. Liz and I, we were in Bible school, and you know, you're in Bible school, and you're trying to figure out what what you're going to do besides make babies and get a job and live married life. You're like, well, God, what do you have for us? And I'll never forget, we were in the middle of, of this revival. I went to Zion Bible Institute back then. It was in East Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, there was this, like, three-, four-, five-day revival going on. And in the midst of that kind of electricity, man, God does some amazing things, really amazing. And one of the amazing things he did was he spoke to my heart and he gave me my calling in life. He said, Brian, I want you to be a parent to thousands of children. I thought, well, that could be fun. (laughs) (laughs) But... (laughs) What exactly do you mean by that? And so it was Liz's and my job to try to figure that out. What did it mean to be the parent of thousands of children? Back then, we're talking the late 70s, early 80s, um, children's pastors weren't really a known entity back then. It's certainly in the Assemblies of God. So we went up and down the East Coast interviewing with different programs that had women in it, that had children, guys, families, like you know, coming alongside, rehabs, just trying to figure out where God wanted us. Well, the truth was that God wanted me to become a children's pastor. And so, as I parsed that all out, I became an assistant pastor with one of the guys that I had graduated Bible school with, and I came alongside as an assistant pastor with the agreement that when we grew to be large enough, they would hire me to be a children's pastor, whatever that meant. And as the dream went on, I became one of the first ordained children's pastors in the southern New England district of the Assemblies of God. And God's vision was fulfilled. And there would be other expectations that he would have for me about being a missionary, which eventually came to pass. Um, But it didn't really look right because by then I was in Argentina and I was doing a lot of stuff in South America with the Argentine revival and the vision was that I'd be placing my hand on little black children. There is a breakdown here because in Argentina there're not too many black people. And so it didn't really make sense until years later I went to be prayed for and to be commissioned as a nationally appointed home missionary to the inner city of Providence, Rhode Island where our population was almost exclusively African American. And as they were praying for me I was I screamed. I was like, "This is it!" Did I say that? (laughs) This is the fulfillment of that vision that God gave us. It sounded unrealistic, but in reality, I just couldn't see the whole picture yet. So this is kind of what we're talking about for you right now in this moment. If God gives you a vision or a plan that you can't quite understand, how do you know if something is God's will? If you're a brand new Christian you might want to write these things down. This is not a perfect, this is just an opinion, but I'll give you five little flags that you try to get a majority of in order to discern, is this really what God wants me to do, or is this what I want to do? Like if you're buying a house, buying a car, marrying somebody, changing a job, doing something big, not, like, what kind of tie should I wear? Like, if people still wear ties. Sorry, Mark, where are you? I know you're out there. Mark Dana still wears a tie. Let's hear it from Mark. There he is. Yeah. Go, Mark. Go Mark. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the big things, right? So, Here we go. They are, does the word confirm it? God's word will confirm God's will for your life. Do you have an inner peace about, the? oh yeah, man, I love her. I got a great inner peace. Okay, well, that's only flag number two. God will tip his hand supernaturally to make a way where there is no way. He'll close doors you'll never be able to open and he will open doors you'll never be able to close. Third one. Fourth one the spiritual authority in your life will give their blessing. And finally, if you're married, your spouse will give their blessing. And what I'm saying is, if you can get like four out of five of these, chances are, yeah, I would pursue it as God's will in your life. God can move or steer a moving car better than he can a parked one. Right? So... Go after what you believe God's dream for you is. Chances are, if it's God's dream, it's going to be much bigger than you are. And it's going to seem impossible. But don't give up. Just go for it. That's what I believe Joseph was doing this whole time. I believe that God gave him a vision of what would happen someday. And so when he was sold into slavery, when he was put in jail, when he was falsely accused, I believe he kept God's vision in front of him. What God said would be true And he kept moving towards that. Keeping expectations in line with God's plan will keep them realistic for you. Okay, let's look at some healthy strategies for managing disappointment. Because we all have them, and so what are we practically supposed to do with them? Number one, may I suggest that you express your disappointment to God? So many Christians are, I can't tell that to God. Trust me. There ain't nothing that God has not heard, not seen. You can tell him. He's a big God, he's able to deal with it. What does it do when I express my disappointment to God? Well, what did it do for David in Psalm 22? He poured out his heart to God and he said, Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer me. The, the, the heavens are silent here. Come on, what's going on? I'm supposed to be a, a man after your own heart. I'm supposed to do all these things and I come back and my, my whole town is torched. My wife and kids are gone. I'm calling out to you, but I'm not hearing from you. I'm disappointed. You're supposed to be there for me. What does expressing your disappointment do when you express it to God? It prepares you to experience God's love and his comfort if you have the idea that God enjoys you writhing in pain and in frustration you are wrong. life throws at us things that make us writhe and make us uncomfortable and cause us to suffer but that is not God's delight. God's delight for you is not to suffer He allows suffering to But that is not necessarily what he takes pleasure in. So it allows you to experience God's love and comfort as you get through that. It reminds you that God is still in control and that he has the highest good for you in mind. All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no turning, no shadow of turning. You know that every good and perfect thing is from God. And when he looks at you, can I remind you that you are special to him? He is especially fond of you this morning. You may not be especially fond of you because you know what you've been doing all week. You've been knowing what you've been thinking all week. But God is. God is especially fond of you. And when you begin to express your disappointment to God, you can be reminded that this is true. Some of you might not have an active prayer life. You don't have a a way of communicating to God. Can I give you a real simple little formula? This is not the only one in the world. I've said it before. I'll say it again because it works for me. It's A-C-T-S. This is just a way of approaching God in prayer. A, adore him like we were doing in worship. Mighty God, Savior, you know, you're awesome. There's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. You're bragging on God. On the count of three, just say one word and brag on God. God, you are. Ready? One, two, three. There you go. You're bragging on God. That's adoring God. That's letting Him know what you think about Him, (laughs) apart from the fact that you're disappointed. All the good things about Him, right? (laughs) C, confess. You've fallen short. You haven't really kind of done what you think you know that God wants you to do. Tell Him. What do you think about, as a dad, if my kids come to me first before I discover it myself? And they tell me, Dad, I I didn't quite do this right. In fact, I really messed up. I'm far more lenient, or my heart's going to be a lot softer than if I discover it, and they've been trying to hide it, right? It's kind of the same dynamic when you go to God and you say, God, I really blew it here. Well, hello, 411, he already knew you blew it. But in telling him what you're saying is, I recognize I blew it. And I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I am so sorry. Magnificent, almighty God, would you please forgive me? And it sets that relationship right. Third thing for the T is thanksgiving. Give him thanks. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And finally, the S is for supplication. It's for asking him for things in your life. Would you therefore please do this for me? For instance, God, I'm really disappointed because I didn't get my raise. I'm really disappointed that the house we wanted and that I had my heart set on didn't come through. How many of you are house buying at the moment or planning to in the near future? None of you? Oh, good. Because let me tell you what. It stinks. You you get out there and it might take you like a year to buy a house. And trust me, there are homes you have no idea exist until you see them and then (gasps) they're the home of your dreams. They're the home that God has selected especially for you. And then it gets sold out from underneath you. <laughs> nope, that wasn't it. It's disappointment after disappointment. It's a terrible thing. Until you find the right one and then you land there and then you can cruise into AARP land if that's what your plan is and you can have a great time. But it is kind of a disappointing sort of thing to do. And you're asking God with ACTS to supply your needs, to give you what you want. Maybe it's the house, maybe it's this. Um, and if a house passes and it gets sold, you get the opportunity to ask God to give you a new goal. okay. Clearly, that wasn't what you had in plan for me. Could you refocus me into the next thing? Okay, are you with me? Number two, we need to practice thankfulness, which allows for the ability to reframe. It's always a choice. Joy and thankfulness are always a choice. Living through Auschwitz, being in a concentration camp, very desolate, very depressing, very awful, and yet... There were people that still made it a choice to be grateful and to be thankful that they were still on the side of the dirt and then they worked them way up from there. Thankfulness sets our minds into God's perspective. When you're disappointed, chances are you're not feeling very godly. Certainly, we're not sounding very godly. (laughs) Um, And thankfulness kind of reorients us to be more godly. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, Habakkuk said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He was choosing to be thankful. He was choosing to reorient himself. Third, seek contentment, not circumstances. Circumstances are going to change, and they're going to cause you disappointment. But as with Paul, if you can say, I am learning to be content, you have a better shot at being disappointed less often. What do I mean by contentment? It's not getting what you want, but wanting what you have. Right. Think about it. We're such a society today that we want what we want when we want it and we feel entitled to get it that when we don't get it, we're disappointed. Like, hey, where's mine? I want to get me mine. I want to get it now. I have to wait a year? I have to save up to buy this thing? No, I think I'll go and rent it. And that way I can have it now, even though I'm going to pay five times more than what that object is worth. We make crazy decisions based on circumstances and based on entitlement to get what we want when we want it instead of learning to be content with what we have. So let's get into some consequences of untamed disappointment. Here's where we're going to spend some time. Untamed disappointment leads, first of all, to anger. May I ask you, as I do all people, eventually, that come to my office, I, I usually have a check-in system that I run by them being a cognitive guy. I like to know where people are on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, and so I'll ask them, so what's your mood? If 1 is dark and 10 is bright for the last two weeks, where is your mood? Oh, it's a 3. Okay, so they've been kind of down. Oh, it's a 9. They've been kind of up. Okay, I get that. I also ask people on a fairly regular basis, how many angry outbursts have you had this week? You don't need to raise your hand, but how many have you had? Get the number in your mind. Is it one? None? Five? Six? I can't remember how many. There have been too many. Right? Anger is a part of life. It's a part of all of our lives, but it's one of those little things that manifests itself after disappointment that can really take you down. The scripture that goes with this is don't Sin by letting anger gain control over you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. That's our current New Living Translation. I think that King Jamie said it better. He said, go ahead and be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the anger go down. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? Anger. A lot of what I do, both as a pastor and as a psychotherapist, is help people cope with anger. The Bible is saying you're going to be angry, but it's saying don't let it get control over you. I don't know how many of you experience road rage. <laughs> Hi, my name is Brian, <laughs> and I experience road rage, much to the disheartenment of my family. So the last time it really happened to great ugly consequences was we were in Towson the kids were in our little minivan and Liz was in the seat next to me and if you want to trigger my road rage just flip me the bird for no apparent reason just shoot me the bird if you happen to be a guy I can live with it if you're a woman I don't know why it's so disrespectful if it's a woman with me and if you happen to have children in the car with you when you do it to me I'm going to kill you. That's it. And unfortunately, I go from zero to stupid really quickly. I mean, just like... We were in the Towson Roundabout, and this really, like, nasty-looking lady cuts in front of me. She flips me the bird, and she has children in the car. My foot just sort of goes on the accelerator. And I'm going to ride her bumper. And if she stops, I'm going to eat her for lunch. And she's going to deserve it. And all these things are going through my head. And I'm a pastor. More importantly, at that moment, I had a wife and children in the car going, ah! it, was, it, was, it was bad. And we went around the circle and around the circle. And I mean, like, clearly. This, this woman had some issues, you know. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) So we resolved to not let this behavior ever happen again so that my family and I could live a happy life, never mind the offending parties, right? Who, by the way, just went off into the sunset like, really? So we came up with a system where if I was going to get triggered, I would deal with it much differently. And it worked. I still get road rage, but I have a way of disconnecting really quickly, so that whole thing doesn't go from here to stupid. It just that's it. That's what that's what happens. And I'll be glad to share that with you on a personal level if you'd like. But <laughs> what do you do with anger so that it doesn't get control over you? First thing we need to do is we need to understand that anger is the manifestation of something that's behind it. Let's look at this chart real quick. These are the things that actually get you angry. They are possibly shame, sadness, fear, frustration, guilt, worry, embarrassment, jealousy, hurt, anxiety. Pick one. What's your trigger? We all have one. Know what it is so that you can be prepared. So that when you get absolutely angry out of your mind next time, you're not just getting angry. It's because you're hurt. It's because you're disappointed. It's because you're worried. It's because you're anxious. It's because you're... And and, I can see all your faces now. You're going, oh yeah, oh my gosh. If I look at him, he's going to know it's really... that I. No, trust me, I can't see you. The lights are so bright. I just see the white of your teeth because I see you smiling now because you're identifying with us. Um, Can I give you just three quick little things to do? These are not the end all, but they're just ways of helping you begin to approach not letting anger control you. Number one... Where do you feel anger if you're like me and it's road rage, my face explodes with heat. It's just like, boom, everything rushes to my head and it's like, that's why people see red. That's why people are called hotheads. But maybe for you, you clench your fists, you clench your jaws, you grind your teeth, you get that knot in your stomach, you feel it in your back. Where do you feel anger when it's coming up on you? If you can feel it before the point of no return, you can back away. Back away, back away. You know where it says, you know, just count to 10? There's a reason for that. Back away, count to 10, take some deep breaths. You can actually control the sympathetic nervous system in your body. That fight, when you get angry, or a flight response where everything goes into self-preservation, you see the bear in the woods, <gasps> and you freeze for that second, and then your whole body shuts down except for the ability to either take on a 6,000-pound grizzly or run. And somehow we all find this amazing superpower just to take off like we've never taken off before. That's because every resource in your body is getting pointed towards your Nike sneakers at that point. And it's enabling you to leave. So what I'm telling you is when you get angry and that system kicks up, you want to grab it before it takes you over the edge and you're in full-fledged anger mode. You want to identify where it is happening in your body. You want to step back. You want to count to 10. And you don't feel very godly in the moment. But if you'll start talking to God, it kind of takes you sort of, it's hard to be cursing somebody out and talking to God at the same time. And so just, you know, those are three little helpful things about not allowing anger to get control over you, settling a dispute. I understand that timing is everything. And if your spouse is angry at you or your parent is angry at you or you're angry at your parent or you're angry at a sibling or you're angry at a boss or a coworker, timing is everything, right? Right. So you want to make sure that you got the timing right. But if you can go back and apologize and make amends before the sun goes down, chances are you'll have a better night's sleep. That's what that's talking about. So that the devil doesn't get a foothold into your life. How many of you have ever experienced the the devastating effects of anger? Right? Family, jobs lost, people dead, ugly, horrible things, right? Let's look at number three real quick. It's called Satan's Wedge. And it goes something like this. Disappointment unchecked will lead to discouragement discouragement if you don't deal with it will lead to disillusionment disillusionment will drag you into that very dark landscape of depression until finally you give up in defeat so how do we short circuit this thing no matter where you are on in this process wherever you find yourself you can actually reverse it at any one of these points let's look at them real quick disappointment. We know that thankfulness reorients you. It gives you a chance to reframe. It gives you a chance to experience God's mercies, which are new every morning. It gives you a chance to kind of take a breath and say, all right, God, give me a new goal. Help me like you did Joseph. I'm in prison. I've been falsely accused. I'm terribly disappointed. I thought I was going to be worshiped. I thought I was going to have this position, and I don't. Keep me floating. Discouragement, You know, David did come back from a battle and uh, Ziklag was burnt to a crisp. All the women and children were gone, including his wife and kids. He was distraught. Unfortunate part about it was the other guys with him were distraught too. And they were starting to get pretty angry themselves, disappointed and frustrated. And they turned and they said, you know what? Our leader did this. You know, if we hadn't been off fighting then, they would never have taken our wives and our kids. I think we should take care of this guy. He's the guy that's responsible for this, not the enemy that took off with our wives and kids. So let's, let's just take care of David. Let's stone him right now. Let's just take him out. And so David, understanding that this is what was going on, what did he do? He went and he encouraged himself in the Lord. Exactly what does that mean? <laughs> When I looked at that, I've known that verse for a long time. Uh, and, And ever since Bible school, encouraging myself in the Lord has been something that I've tried to practice. I'd like to just share this with you. How many of you have ever encouraged yourself in the Lord? Real quick. What does it mean you do? It means that you talk to God. You remind yourself who he is, that he's able to do the impossible. That God's plan for you is not necessarily to stop right here. If you get disappointed as a Christian, can I just give you something to help you with right now? Two things. One, if you fall, get up. Two, move forward. That's God's plan for us all, is to get back up, be those weeble Christians. Even though a Christian falls seven times, he gets up eight, and he keeps moving forward. Encourage yourself in the Lord. That's what David did And he went after those guys. He got his wife and kids back, and so did everybody else. Don't allow the devil, a foothold in your life, to take you out before God's plan in your life is realized. He's got a plan for each one of us, and sometimes before he's able to bring it to fruition, we jump out of the the race. We jump out of the game. Disillusionment will shatter all that you believe in. When, and I deal with a lot of this in my practice, when a couple has been involved in infidelity of one kind or another, whether it's an affair, whether it's whatever. The offended party, whether it's the woman or the man, is always experiencing this very disjointed disillusionment. They're fractured. Every assumption they've ever had has been stripped away. I thought I was smarter than this, and yet I believed this turkey for however many years. I must be stupid. And why are they doing that? Aren't I good looking enough? Don't I, am I not smart enough? Really? He's got to go after these these other women or these other guys she's got to go after? Or he's got to go after these other guys? What, I'm not enough? And how about you, God? Weren't you the one at the altar that gave me this this loser? (laughs) And so your whole idea about God, about yourself, about your body image, about your confidence, shot disillusionment will shatter everything what do you do before depression or even after depression sets in may i just address something really quickly i don't have a thyroid i had cancer in my thyroid so they took my thyroid out your thyroid controls the sort of um uh tension in your body It'll help to cool you down, help to heat you up when you're cold, and it kind of gives you the oomph. So if you go hyperthyroid, oh, you start to move really slowly. And trust me, your skin gets all mottled. It's awful. I've been there, done that. Don't like it. If you're hyperthyroid, your eyes bulge out of your head, and you're really it cranks you up. And so they try to give you medicine that keeps you just in the middle there. I take it and will take it for the rest of my life because I don't have a thyroid. If you are a depressed person and you deal with that dark and painful landscape of depression a lot, and I'm not talking about, oh, I was really depressed yesterday. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you don't get up in the morning. You don't eat. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want any lights on in the room. You don't want to have sex with your spouse. You don't want to do anything enjoyable, not just for a moment, Not just a minute, but for days and days. How many of you? Yeah, there are a number of you in this room that know that dark landscape. Listen, if that's you, and somebody has told you that without faith, you're never going to get well again, that if you, you depend on an antidepressant to help you out of that landscape, you're not trusting God. Can I just say right now, I do not agree with that theology, that God will use medication for all of us if we need it. And there's nothing wrong with taking an antidepressant. If that's what helps you get out of that landscape, trust me, if you've never known anybody that's ultimately very depressed, it's horrible. And so we want to help these guys, right? So if that's you, understand this. In Psalms, God is talked about as the lifter of our head. And I never really understood this until I understood the meaning of what him being the lifter of our head really is. If you were despondent, disillusioned, out of the box, not able to provide for yourself, you'd sit in the city. And if somebody came by and decided to have mercy on you, they would take their hand and they would lift up your head. And it would mean that they were taking responsibility for you to then begin to provide for all of your needs. They would be the lifter of your head. God says that he is the lifter of your head this morning. And it doesn't matter how depressed, it doesn't matter how disillusioned or how shattered or how broken life has become for you. He declares today that he wants to be and will be if you will invite him to be the lifter of your head. He will take provision for you. He will make a way where there is no way. As far as the bottom line defeat here, I got some news in case you haven't heard. My Jesus did what only Jesus and God could do 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross. He died giving up his life for you and me so that he could descend into hell and take the keys to death and life and win ultimately over the devil. The devil has one job, and his job is to come and do what? Three things steal, kill, and destroy. Absolutely right. But the rest of that scripture says, and I have come to do what? To give life, and that more abundantly. Brothers and sisters, I guess I am old school, aren't I? <laughs> hey, I am, that's what it is. All right, so may I just remind you that there is no sting in death when God is a part of it. That ultimately he has won over the enemy. That Calvary settled his score way back then. And that when we find ourselves feeling that, that huge suction to just to go down the black hole and to just stay in defeat, can I remind you that the battle is already won, that we serve a victorious God who's able to do far and above anything we can ask or think. If we'll just press into him, we'll begin to have 50-20 vision. And when disappointment comes our way, we'll be able to either solve it or manage it so that God's plan for you and me can be realized just like Joseph Mm. and you know what there's one more point and just so we don't leave it blank let me fill it in for you but I won't take a lot of time and it's resentment unchecked disappointment leads to resentment resentment is like swallowing poison waiting for the rat to die Resentment is often held by you without the person that you're angry and, and tweaked about ever knowing. And some of us carry resentment around for years without letting it go. And that resentment eats us up, it binds us up, it renders us unable to be a God's hand-extended it renders us incapable of really helping ourselves a lot because it really shackles us up. Resentment will cause the root of bitterness to take hold in our lives and it'll take you out. It really will. The answer to resentment is forgiveness. It sets us free, it enables us to be God's hands extended. It begins to restore our hearts back to where they need to be so that we can have soft hearts again, not hard hearts. Let me just give you the quick and down and dirty. Pastor Phil did a message on forgiveness that bar bar none is one of the best I've ever heard. And if you go back, I didn't write it into this one. I wrote it on my other notes. It's back when he first got here, so that's in 2012. Um, It was one of the first ones, and it doesn't say forgiveness in it, but it's in a series on forgiveness. Just look back in the archives. You'll see it. I'll I'll try to remember to say something about it next week so that you can have it exactly, but he really deals with this in depth. It's worth going back and hunting for. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing message on forgiveness. The bottom line is forgiveness is not saying that whatever has been done to you was okay, that the person is resolved from all consequences. It's simply saying, I release it, I let it go. God requires us to be forgiving for our benefit right. so that we can receive forgiveness, so that we can give forgiveness, so that we don't have to be tied down to resentment. Whew. That's why Pastor Phil talks so fast. <laughs> I'm just saying it's great, great, great series. I'm so glad he involved me in this process. Listen, There's at least one thing that resonates with your spirit today. There's a lot that went into today, but maybe there's only one thing. What's the one thing the Holy Spirit's inviting you to do today? That's the way I want to close this this time. Our prayer team's going to come. The worship team's going to come back. We're going to give you a little chance just to sit in his presence, just to kind of wrestle with the idea that, you know what? You have choices. You have some responsibility in how you respond to disappointment. And one of the things that we said today is resonating with your spirit. And it probably is not something that you think is very easy to do or very pleasant to do or even maybe possible to do. But can I remind you that we serve a God where nothing is impossible for him? where he says that he will be our good shepherd, that he will comfort us, that he will restore us beside still waters, that he will provide us a table in the presence of our enemies. He will be the lifter of our head. So as you face whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is asking you to do, remember that you're not in it alone. And if perchance you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you're here for the first time and you just heard about us and you're just here because you thought maybe there would be something here for you, can I invite you to begin a relationship with Jesus today? You can pray a prayer like Pastor Phil, like many of us have, and that simply goes like this. Heavenly Father, I recognize today that I have not lived the kind of life I needed to live and that I probably made you unhappy and I've broken a bunch of rules and stuff. And Lord, I... I'm I'm just ready to turn myself around here. But I don't know how. I don't know how this looks. I don't know what to do. Try this. Try just telling him I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Begin to lead me in the way that I should go and I'll follow you so that I can become this fully developed follower of you, that I can become the person that you originally created me to be where sin doesn't have a foothold in my life and isn't totally overwhelming me. Listen to me, it doesn't matter if the issues that you're struggling with today are normally things that are scoffed at, whether they're addictions or bad, bad choices or things that happen to you that you didn't choose to have happen. God doesn't base his forgiveness on anything but in this moment when you ask him to come into your life and to forgive you of your past and to give you a fresh start. No abuse, no awful separations in relationships like divorce or death can come between what God has for you and his love for you if you'll invite him today. He will answer that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for giving us uh, tools to deal with things like disappointment and frustration and anger lord i thank you that your word gives us good instructions on how to deal with these things and i just pray today that as we wrestle with what your holy spirit is asking us to do we would get some answers we would we would be able to get back up and to be moving forward i pray lord for fifty twenty vision for all of us that you would help us lord to uh to get your perspective on what what we're going through so that we can live a life that's close to you, learning to be content, not necessarily happy, but walking for you, walking upright, solid lives. So as the worship team begins to play, prayer team's over here. You can sit in your seat. All I ask you to do is to honestly ask yourself, what do you believe the Holy Spirit is asking you to respond to today? And to respond to it. Do what he's asking you to do.